We would like to offer our respects to the traditional elders of all generations upon whose lands this podcast has been created, including the Camaragal people of the Eora Nation. We'd also like to extend that respect and recognition to any First Nations listeners. How well do you think you know someone? Maybe your initial impressions are all wrong. What if their real stories are more interesting, more amazing and more surprising than you ever expected? This is Let Me Tell You from SBS Voices. I'm Caitlin Chang. And I'm Sarah Malik. And we are your hosts as we hear the unexpected stories behind ordinary people's lives. All of these stories were originally written for SBS Voices, Australia's home of diverse storytelling. But they were so good, we thought they deserved to be spoken out loud. What do you do when you discover something life-changing about yourself later in life? This is what happened to Linda Augusto. Linda's journey into her past to uncover family secrets is a must-listen, a bit like reading a book in reverse and trying to piece together your life like a puzzle. It's a heartbreaking listen, this one, isn't it, Caitlin? Yeah, it actually really is. I think it's really the sleuthing into the unsaid moments of Linda's life with her nan. It's a real reminder for me at least, that, you know, our histories, our ancestors, our family secrets, even if they're hidden, they really inform so much of our lives in ways we just can't perceive. And here's Linda Augusto reading, following the legacy of strong black women before me. I have fair skin, am covered in freckles and have strawberry blonde curly hair. I'm a Wiradjuri woman, and I'm proud to be my nan's granddaughter. I don't fit the picture of what people expect an Aboriginal person to look like. I'm what is known as milky tea. I'm often asked the question, how Aboriginal are you? When I'm feeling my most vulnerable, this has me wondering, am I Aboriginal enough? This, combined with discovering about my Aboriginal identity later in life, has impacted my sense of identity. Sometimes I feel almost inferior as an Aboriginal person, like I don't fit in. Some people believe that Aboriginal people who discover their culture later in life should not call themselves Aboriginal. They call these people a JCL which stands for Johnny Come Lately. Someone who didn't really live with the culture. This confuses me, as many generations of Aboriginal people had to hide their identity to prevent their children being taken away. We have a dark and hidden history, which has resulted in the sad loss of cultural knowledge and identity. My memories with Nan take place in her unit on Auburn Road in Sydney's Yuguna and fill me with a warmth and comfort. As the youngest of 12 grandchildren, I basked in her attention. Her lighter skin meant it was safer for her to deny her Aboriginal culture at 18 when she had her firstborn, my mum's older sister. At the time of my aunt's birth, Nan was living with my grandfather's family. 
Her sister-in-law, a white, middle-class, formidable woman with Scottish heritage, threatened to take her away. I imagine this is when my nan's fiercely protective instinct kicked in. Our time together was filled with baking, sewing and knitting. We baked scones, cooked curries and made pikelets on a giant griddle. Nan's balcony was a jungle of plants with a pot of dirt for me to turn into mud and fill the cake tins to make mud pies. I would help Nan with whatever work she could pick up. She only attended school until she was 13 years old but was an amazing seamstress. She would spend her early days out on the cattle stations of wealthy white women and would sew their ball gowns for them for their country dances. Nan's proudest journey was her trip to Central Australia, to desert country. I heard about the Sturts Desert Pea and the Spinifex grass. She told me stories of seeing it roll across the red dirt. It was during these stories that Nan introduced me to ochre, explained how to mix it with water to make paint. Nan returned with her Aboriginal art in brown and orange colours painted from ochre, which she proudly hung on her walls among the Albert Namanjira prints. I used to love to lay on the floor while imagining the formations I could see in the trees of the Namanjira prints. The tree where I saw an old man with a pot belly and a guitar standing up beside him. The scary ghost face looking at me from the ghost gum. I wish I had just one more hour, one day with her to ask her all the things I wish I now knew. To know about that part of herself that she only alluded to, but didn't directly tell us about in her stories. Aboriginal culture was deeply embedded in my life growing up. It was just never named. There was always someone to babysit me, pick me up as a baby and play with me. Everyone always knew what I was up to. My family kept me on the straight and narrow. I was answerable to not only my parents, but my grandparents, aunts, uncles, and endless older cousins. Nan had a veranda out the back of Mum's childhood home in Dubbo, with many beds to accommodate whoever turned up in the night. Nan was the auntie that took in the nieces and nephews when they were mucking up. They would stay for a while, and she'd sort them out. The official term for this is kinship care, but this was our way. My nan hid her Aboriginality because of fear and shame. She passed away in 2008 at 95. She lived in a time where being Aboriginal meant a loss of basic human rights and an inability to live freely and safely. In doing this, her freedom of culture, belonging and identity was stolen. This stops with me. I will carry on the silent but very visible culture that my nan lived and shared with me. I'm so proud of the strong women who came before me and I will continue the ways of my nan, great aunts and great granny by caring for and educating children, protecting and appreciating our country and leading with love and strength. I will continue to fight injustice live wholeheartedly and practice forgiveness and be courageous. My hope is to heal the secrets of my family's past by proudly identifying with my Aboriginal culture. 
for my nan. And that was Linda Augusto reading from her story, Following the Legacy of the Strong Black Women Before Me. Welcome to the show, Linda. Thank you. That was such a powerful read. Um, And it's such a tribute to your grandmother, who sounds like such an amazing woman. What made you want to write this piece and pay tribute to her in this way? I think um, it really was to pay tribute to what she had to hide and to celebrate our culture. For years it had been hidden or whispered about or um, referred to as perhaps we were Maori, perhaps there was something. And so it was just my children were the ones who encouraged me to find out more and to ask more questions, which then started the journey for us. Because you almost didn't write this piece and you were very reluctant to put your real name on it. So tell us a bit about that. I was terrified about actually putting this out there because if you think about... Um, So many, even high profile people who talk about their Aboriginal background, if they have found out later in life, it's been very contentious for them. I also didn't want to put my name to it for that fear, that fear of being seen, of being noticed and for being openly challenged. It's such a scary place to sit. But it was a conversation I had with my sons who said to me, Mum, you know, the whole point of you writing this piece is to talk about and and bring out our Aboriginal background and Nan's culture of giving her a voice in this, of, of really her being able to, of representing her as being an Aboriginal woman. Why wouldn't you put your name to that? If you don't put your name to this, then you're doing exactly what she did and you shouldn't have to feel like that. You should only ever have to celebrate who you are, celebrate our culture, celebrate who we are. Um, And it was them who actually encouraged me to put my name to this. I'm so glad they did because it's such a loving portrait of your grandmother and it really does honour her. Um, Tell us about this really loving relationship that you had with her. I spent a lot of time with Nan. We all did. But because I was definitely like, you know, the youngest, most of the others when they grew up had each other there when they stayed with Nan. So Nan lost um, Da, my grandfather, when I was three. And so I guess I filled a gap for her, but also she filled a gap for me. It gave me the opportunity to to spend time time with her to be spoilt beyond belief. Mm-hmm. She always had... It's the, always the youngest one that gets spoiled, is. isn't it? I was yeah. just thinking, she, you were the baby of the family. I definitely I am. Tell. Yeah, and my, my oldest, eldest sister would absolutely tell you how spoiled I am. Um, and that was definitely Nan. So I would come, she would have my favourite ice block, she would have curried prawns and rice in the freezer waiting for me. We would do endless cooking, whatever I wanted to do, she would do it. And, you know, and she spoiled all of us. You were her little baby. I absolutely was. And what do you remember most about your nan? I think what I remember most is how she made me feel. Yeah. Um, Yeah, she just had, I'm getting emotional now, she just had endless time and kindness Mm. to give me. Yeah. And all of us. Yeah. Yeah. Love nan. And she was, yeah. 
she was such a giving woman. So she she was very humble. She didn't have a lot, but she would give you her last meal. She would sew for whoever needed it and she would absolutely give you the shirt off her back if someone needed that. It's so lovely that you've honoured her with this story. Can you tell us a little bit about when you discovered or confirmed your Aboriginal heritage and culture, how did that happen? As I said to you, it was always whispered about, always spoken about. And what's interesting is myself and one of my cousins, so my mum's cousin's daughter, actually, who has red hair, um, same as me, both of us are the people who really started to ask more questions and unpack and really go on that journey of finding out more. And I think there was always that fear for me that I didn't ever want to claim to be an Aboriginal person and have Aboriginal culture unless you're 100% sure. But the journey of that is really challenging because my great-grandmother and my great-great-grandmother were both born on stations, which generally is a pretty good indication that, you know, because that was like a mission. But I never wanted to, to claim being part of a culture that I wasn't. So it was really just searching and digging for little pieces of information. But what you have to remember is Aboriginal people back then didn't exist as a human. They were flora and fauna. So there's no birth certificates. There's no knowledge of that. And the, the records are often very hard to get. So the station that my great-great-grandmother was born on, there are records of the station, but they're not accessible to public. So it's really hard for us to find. So I think there's one confirming um, newspaper article that my nan's grandmother was mentioned in and the, the land that she lived on was also mentioned. And she was referred to as a half-caste woman in that article. It sounds as if there were all these missing pieces. There are. And you knew something was up, but it was like trying to put it all together in reverse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a puzzle that you're kind of digging away to find pieces of this puzzle to put together a whole. And there's still so many questions. There's often more questions than answers. But I guess when I really started to feel confident was when we started to find some of those answers to the questions we were asking. So for me, it was... I guess being an early childhood teacher um, and being involved in some really amazing workplaces who were so committed to working with First Nations families and children, that was what really drove me to find out more and to find out how I could make a difference. Mm. And you talk about in the story how your nan's culture was always there, but it wasn't ever named. Can you tell us a bit more about that and the Things that you remember that you are piecing together now. So I was having a conversation with one of my cousins and my mum the other night and his son, and he just said, how did you guys not, like, ask questions? How did, like, he was saying to my mum, how did you not piece this together? So if you look at photos and images of my family, if you look, every piece of art on my nan's wall was either by Albert Namajira or an Aboriginal artist, the, the way of life. So within Aboriginal families are often very large and everybody knows everyone's business and everybody is up in everyone's business. So my nan was one of 10. Um, we always had a cousin or someone that we were meeting or knew or, you know, was coming out of the woodwork. Even when I wrote this piece, there were people who'd reached out to me on Facebook and said, gee, your nan looks like my 
grandmother and or my mom and I was like okay so who was that and when they told me it was my nan's sister wow. you know so there's always wow. people that you're meeting that you haven't known yet or met yet in person because families are so large but also that want my nan was such a giving person to in particular to children so when my mom was a kid they would take in a, a child from Back then, I believe there were orphanages, you know, for a week at a time or for a couple of weeks to take them places and, you know, support them. And as I mentioned, being the nan that, you know, took the the nieces or nephews that were, you know, walking out of line and, um, you know, bringing them back together, just really... Aboriginal families are responsible for everyone in that family and that was just always the way things were done. If there was... One thing that you wanted to ask your nan now, what would it be? I would ask her more about what life was like for her when she was younger. It's really interesting. So our journeys, we, we would go back to Dubbo at least yearly because we still have family there. Um, but the little bits and pieces. So nan, when she taught me how to or was talking to me about ochre and how to use it for paint, what I didn't know and I've only learned in the past couple of years was I always thought ochre was a Central Australia thing that happened for painting, but actually it's a Wiradjuri thing as well. And I was there recently in one of the cultural centres and saw that and I was like, oh, like for her to know that, was she sharing with me a story from her past? Um, but also she would she's taught me, and I can't unsee it now, um, how to identify mistletoe. And so what I didn't realise is that mistletoe is also a very um, useful thing to know, particularly in Wiradjuri country, um, because it kills trees and then often animals will burrow in and that's a way that um, food can be found because they'll get trapped in the empty tree. So those little stories, I wish I had the chance to ask more about what that meant for her and her brothers and sisters growing up. Yeah. It's just so tragic that someone with such a powerful, rich culture mm. is forced to hide it yeah. in this way. Yeah. And your story is so compassionate, putting yourself in her shoes and what it would have been like. How cathartic is it for you to be able to finally name it and go on this journey? Yeah, it's actually, um, I feel sorrow for her to think that that had to happen. And even like, I wish I could find out more about what was behind those choices. Because what I do know is back in her day, Aboriginal people could choose to carry an exemption document that meant they renounced their Aboriginal culture. So it meant that, you know, if they didn't speak, didn't practice culture or dance or anything, that they could live like a normal person, which sounds terrible, um, but not have to ask permission to do things or, you know, go places. So I often wonder, was that part of her story and decision-making? There's an element of sorrow there, but there's also for me to be able to talk about this and to bring this forward for my family and for us to talk about and discuss more, it feels really powerful to be able to own that. So I know Tony Birch wrote about this in The White Girl, the horrific system of permit systems mm. and so basically an apartheid era yeah. where people were forced to do these terrible things in order to survive and have some measure of freedom. It's amazing that she had to go through all of that but she still had so much love to give to you. That's remarkable. Yeah. 
Yeah, she was definitely an amazing woman. A very strong, formidable woman too at times. So my mum tells me, but I never got to see that part of her. And so how are you teaching your own children and the next generation of your family about your culture and identity? So I think it's giving voice to stories. Um, It's also piecing together things that I've heard. So um, whether I'm putting that, writing that in poem or writing that in story for me so that we can share that with my children, with their children. But it is about having conversations and talking about these things. And, you know, each person is on their own journey in relation to Aboriginal culture and identifying or not. And that varies across my family. But really, I connect with my community. And for those people who are ready to do that within my family, I bring them along so they get to experience that as well and help guide them in the process from what I've learned and what I know. It's a deeply emotional journey, I imagine. And it's something that you have to be ready for. Yeah. And so what are some ways you're maintaining your connection to culture now? So for a while, it took the path of working in roles where I was able to support Aboriginal children and families. But currently what I am doing and the path that I'm taking is my job is my job, but outside of work is where I'm finding my culture now. There is an elder Her name is Annie Dolly and she is also someone just standing beside me and in the background who gives me that gentle nudge and strength to feel safe enough to have some really great conversations and to to support the work that she is doing. Um, Yeah, and she really pushes people forward in a really gentle and supportive way to help them find their space in communities. Mm. And don't forget your writing and you're talking about this. Yes, absolutely. I think will be so helpful for so many people and it will mm. be like a handhold, you know, yep. for other people who were where you were, you know. And so I think that's just such a the power of great stories that they can do that for people and help other people navigate these waters. So many people have experienced something similar to me, um, which is why I did tell this story. My friend who put me in contact with Annie Dolly was the person who edited this for me and said to me, you have to do this. You have mm. to tell this story because I know so many people, it's a similar version of this and people need to feel safe enough to do that. And did you have much of a response once the piece was published? Only positive. I was absolutely terrified of being seen and being noticed and also being challenged, but I only had positive reaction to this story from people who reached out, people who either had similar journeys or knew people who had, and everyone's been so encouraging and supportive, so I'm so grateful for that. Thank you. Thank you for writing this and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Linda. And that's it for this episode. Join us next episode where we speak to Ryder Shah Idol. So Ryder was expected to be a high-achieving doctor and was on the path to being a tiger mom to her own kids. But things turned out very differently. Find out how Ryder's path changed. I remember asking the sub-dean, like, what do I tell my dad? And then she's like, just tell him that you're deferring. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm an Asian child. <laughs> I just, I can't just defer, you know, I need to like just keep slogging through, except I couldn't anymore. I literally physically, mentally, emotionally could not and it had burnt out so badly that I had to stop. 
Let Me Tell You is produced by Sarah Malik and Caitlin Chang with audio by Jeremy Wilmot and Max Gosford. Our executive producers are Natalie Hambly and Danielle Toynch. If you'd like to read more of our stories, head to the SBS Voices website at sbs.com.au forward slash voices. 